Welcome to Nerd Here First. I'm Riley Trahan, and if this isn't your first time with us, then you're used to a weekend episode of all four of us getting together and talking about the news, and then in the middle of the week, Deepak and I mm -hmm. doing a paywall movie talk thing. But we have a guest this week that is so exciting that we had to crash down the paywall and share it with everyone, because Mr. Neil Miller of Film School Rejects wow. is joining us to talk about Michael I didn't May. know that we were busting down the paywall for me. Now I feel like <laughs> deeply honored. We can't keep you from the people. Your opinions no demand sure. to be heard. Yeah, that's the rumor. <laughs> that's the rumor. Um, so thanks so much for being on. Thanks for being here. We have been trying to get our schedule straight. And since we started planning this, actually, I feel like there's been some weird heat news that sure. we have to talk about. Um, not only because if we want to talk Heat 2, we can talk Heat 2, but um, I wanted to let you, both of you off of, the, off of the leash for a second because all this HBO stuff is suddenly making owning physical media uh, more of a conversation online than I've seen it be in a long time. And we're releasing this episode in parallel with the re-release mm -hmm. of Heat in 4K in the Best Buy Steelbook. So I, I wanted to give each of you guys... Uh, Deepak, if you want to start us off, and I know it really, you can rev all the way up with this one. Um, just why should people buy? Because it's this heat. Movie? It's uh, one of the best crime thrillers ever. Uh, and yeah, you're right. It's coming out August 9th on 4K disc. Uh, it is now coming out courtesy of Disney uh, because it went from Warner Brothers to Fox a few years ago with the I think it was Regency. Uh, they switched hands, and then Fox put out a disc. In 2017, which was the original 4K restoration, this new disc is essentially the same restoration, or remaster, I apologize, with uh, an HDR pass on top of it. Um, but yeah, it comes out August 9th. There's a Best Buy Steelbook. You can get the normal vanilla edition, I think, pretty much anywhere. Uh, but yeah, physical media is more important now than ever with uh, corporations and conglomerates switching hands and swapping stuff all over the place, things disappearing off the face of the earth, never to be seen again. Uh, if you don't have it, something that you can hold in your hands, uh, you don't really have it. Digital copies are just a lease. They're just giving you permission to watch it as long as they feel you're allowed to watch it. So um, if you want to own Heat or really anything else, if you want to feel like you actually can watch it whenever you want. And of course, there's also, we've talked about on the show, uh, issues of kind of silent censorship going on where they'll take things out or, or change things without telling anyone. Um, own it on disc. Own something you can physically hold, because otherwise it's not real. It's I feel like McConaughey and Wolf of Wall Street is telling them it's a fugazi, it's a fugazi, it's in the ether. It doesn't <laughs> exist, man. I, I feel like that's especially true. Yeah, with that heat, right? detritus line. Like we lost it like ten years ago. Every time I've never he puts heard one it out. Since. Mm -hmm. Neil, you're not a big physical media guy, right? You're all it's fine. It's on Netflix. Oh uh, no, I, I've uh, in, in fact this week. <laughs> Uh, is I'm beginning my project of re-cataloging all of my physical mm. media after moving in... Uh, when did I move? 2021? Yeah. What year is it? 22? <laughs> yeah, okay. 21, I moved. And a lot of my stuff went into uh, storage, a lot of my Blu-ray collection. And uh, so I'm, I'm just now starting to re-catalog it, uh, probably inspired by, you know, recent developments around streaming. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that folks rightly worried about in the streaming bubble era mm -hmm. is the ephemeral nature of it. Not just, um, you know, because if you think about it, the digitizing of movie libraries 
should have been a huge win for accessibility, right? It should have made films more accessible. Right. It should have given films made in countries that are not the United States more chance to be, uh, you know, exported around the world very easily. And <clears throat> there's all these great benefits, but we are seeing some of the darker sides. Uh, not only the idea that a movie could disappear uh, from like a streaming service just because the company that owns it doesn't want it on there anymore or wants to take a, take a tax write-off or something like that. But the idea of studios also being able to change things, you know, we've heard rumblings of Netflix re-editing some of Stranger Things. And I always think back to Game of Thrones season one when they they George had that, uh, that scene yeah. with George W. Bush's head. I still have the Blu-ray of Game of Thrones season one, the initial release that has that scene in it. But... If you go on HBO Max, assuming HBO Max still exists by the time you listen to this podcast, uh, and watch that episode, it's no longer there. So, you know, there's there's concerns about uh, people not having access to a thing entirely and those things changing. And uh, it, it reinforces the importance of, you know, not just physical media, but people who work in preservation, preserving physical copies of things um, so that they don't just disappear because that is uh for a lot of things that were are being created for streaming uh a high possibility you know so it's uh it's a weird time it's been a very strange week to sort of watch this all happening in slow motion and uh you know just keep sort of holding on to the side of the boat (laughs) see what happens i know that this is an important issue to both you guys and because you know, we did want to have this conversation to promote to people that you can go and get this great new version of Heat, which, by the way, has deleted scenes because that's what you needed. You were missing more scenes. Um, uh, you know, we wanted mm-hmm. to make sure we just mm-hmm. took a second to talk about that. But cool. I'm glad we did. And then how we really had planned to start originally was, does everybody want to do like first watch stories? I only came to this movie very recently after Deepak pestered me into it and then found out it was great. But um, Deepak, I think you saw it when we were like taking film study in high school or something. And Neil, I did you were you able to like actually see it or was yours a home? I mean, so yeah, time? this movie came out in what ninety five. I was about twelve yeah. when this movie came out. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it depends how reckless sure. your parents are, Neil. I was I was revisiting with my mom over the weekend the fact that she let me watch Chicago and The Untouchables when I was mm-hmm. nine <laughs> because she felt like it had artistic value. Yeah. So, I mean. It's or she <laughs> yeah, has a she thing for really likes, uh, you know, one of our great midwest. Yeah, listen, as, as somebody who grew up in Cleveland, uh, I can tell you that uh, Chicago, very nice city, um, lovely midwestern <laughs> city. Um, yeah, no, I think you know Michael Mann's filmography in general is something I came to a little bit later, right? I mean, he makes movies that I think resonate most with adult men. So it wasn't until I was an adult man that I could truly connect to you know how great a movie like heat was i think actually last of the mohicans might have been the first one i ever saw so uh in my mind there was um i i had always conflated i think in my early 20s michael mann and terrence malick and it wasn't until i really dove into their two um very disparate uh filmographies that uh really began to appreciate them on an individual level and so yeah i think heat Heat's a movie that I I caught much later. I, I've never seen it in theaters, uh, which is a sad thing. It's one of those movies that's that's kind of up there in uh, in the pantheon of 
ones that I would love to see a repertory screening of, especially the, you know, the shootout at the end and the way that's, that's built to be seen in the biggest, loudest place possible. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a movie I've loved for many years at this point, And, um, you know, there's, there's this just undeniable quality of, of realism that I think he achieves in all of his films, but none more than in heat, you know, can I, can I say, and then Neil, I want you to not have to comment on this. So then Deepak, I want to hear your first watch story, but if any, we're going to get into that shootout scene later, but if anybody wants an incredible breakdown <laughs> of it, uh, there is a wonder run. Don't walk to your nearest HBO max while it's still there and check out one perfect shot which Neil produced and has an incredible breakdown of mm-hmm. that scene that was really, really insightful and helped us to prep for this episode. Yeah, so, it's, uh, D-back, first watch. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> first watch, I came to Heat just through a general kind of self-education on man because the first thing I ever saw was Collateral. And I was, gotta be, I think it came out in 2004, so I don't think I saw it immediately, but I was like in early high school when I saw it. See, this is I had a I had the irresponsible friend who showed me Collateral like thirteen or fourteen, right when yeah, it was nice. coming out. I actually so. remember seeing it for the first time on a plane, and I was like, "Oh, this movie's amazing!" Ooh. Uh, so I saw it the way God intended. Um, but then, yeah, through that, somehow stumbled into Heat, and it didn't hit me initially how good it was. I I mean, I liked it, but it's kind of when you're not necessarily adept at really appreciating film or cinema for what it is, you just kind of remember it for Al Pacino's outbursts. Um, but yeah, it's it's a fantastic movie. Like Neil says, it's incredibly. Uh, I think the thing that really um, drives it home is is the realism of it, or at least the sense of realism about it. Um, that of course has been copied numerous times. Probably most famously, Dark Knight was heavily inspired by that, um, and that's probably where I also came back to it not long after, and then really kind of developed an appreciation for it. Um, but yeah, I, I've seen it a million times over the years. You find yourself discovering new things about it each time you watch it because it's so dense there's so much in there and that's generally the sign of a good movie so well and that that idea right of like stylized mm-hmm. realism i think is something that people throw around with man a lot yeah because um, neil and, Sorry, and go we're gonna no i was just gonna yeah it's everything feels so incredibly real and and thought through mm-hmm. and lived in but at the same time like there's a graceful elegance and like a choreography i think in all his yeah. movies where you know it is it's it's almost like nancy myers doing an action movie right like it's an extreme precision in every single thing um but it's guys shooting each other instead of beautiful yeah. there's something neil said <laughs> um, about it being so realistic or maybe his most realistic movie and i mean i think just for subject matter alone that might be the insider but this one as far as sure. like his action movies it's definitely more realistic than miami vice it's probably more realistic than Collateral, although I mean, people tend to think Collateral falls apart at the end. I think the end is earned. I think the whole point of Collateral is that it builds up to them having a shootout. Like, yeah, but like the fact, yeah, yeah but, the, like yeah. the fact that Jamie Foxx becomes like an action hero at the end. I was like, no, I don't think he really does. Sure, but yeah, but yeah I, there's also kind of a double-edged sword there where Black Hat is apparently very realistic, and it's also his most boring movie by a mile. So, uh, sure. Yeah. Although <laughs> there is a director's cut <clears throat> I've not seen yet. There, there is something funny to me about Michael Mann, um, a man who's about to be in, entering his 80s, mm-hmm. uh, making a movie about the internet. There was just some, some sort of like disconnect there with Black, <laughs> yeah. Black Hat. He was an odd pick. But, you know, like many of, of Mann's movies, I'm sure it's 
it'll be reappraised at some point as being better than we remember it. You know, I, I even feel the way uh, collateral, I think is probably the biggest example of that. I don't remember being super high on collateral in 2004. Um, but you know, when you, when you study man's filmography and you see that a lot of his movies are really just about, you know, a guy, usually a sort of lower working class guy, just trying to make it through the week or in collateral's case, make it through the night. Um, you know, collateral is, is just such a perfect, like, vibe piece and I don't know there's just something about collateral and heat that go together for me because Michael Mann mm. seems to have this penchant for getting the most ridiculously tuned up performances from a couple of mm-hmm. actors that you know Pacino obviously we expected it in by the time he was in heat he was doing all kinds of wild stuff but you know Tom Cruise and collateral is just an all-time just freakish Tom Cruise performance mm-hmm. that is unlike many yeah. of Tom Cruise's other things. So, um, you know, kudos to man for always getting the most out of some, you know, big, big brand names. Um, it must be like a tough guy thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, like game recognized game or whatever. But I was thinking a lot about collateral while watching heat immediately before we recorded this. And it, one of the maybe least flattering comparisons I arrived on was, uh, De Niro does not run nearly as nicely on camera as Mr. Cruz runs. Sure. But there are a lot of things about them that, I mean, yeah, the di- dynamic between those guys and kind of how they, like, abandon their original kind of moral codes and change how they view the world over the movie and whether that ends well for them or not. Yeah, I think there's a lot of... Man loves there, a good code. <laughs> he does. And so we kind of set up a skeleton to talk through the movie but more in like large thematic ways instead of theme by theme stuff. And we wanted to talk first off the bat about man and kind of auteur theory. I feel like we've done that pretty well. Do either of you guys have like anything else you want to say about what makes it a Michael Mann film? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned auteur theory because I've been thinking about auteur theory a lot lately. And I think that Michael Mann sort of embodies a lot of what's, good about auteur theory right this idea that you can have a filmmaker it it does sort of come down at times to one person's strong vision right and it requires Mm. that person in this case a director uh to have not only a strong vision but a strong as michael mann described it a strong determination to manifest that vision um but one of the things Mm. i think that michael mann would tell you um that gets lost, I think, when folks, especially online, discuss things like auteur theory, is that he is the kind of filmmaker that expects everyone to bring, every one of his collaborators to bring something to the project, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so he, mm-hmm. in Heat, he's he's working with Dante Spinotti, who's one of the great cinematographers of not just of his generation, but ever. And a lot of the reasons why heat is so fluid and balletic and gorgeously uh, huge in many ways uh, is due to the way Dante Spinotti moves the camera, places the camera, lights the scenes. Um, it's also, you know, based on, on people scouting great locations and amazing casting. And so it's Michael Mann's a good reminder that it takes a strong vision. It takes uh, strong determination, but it's also a team sport, and you're you're sort of nothing if you don't have the right collaborators and then demand of those collaborators 
that they bring something to improve the project. And I think Heat's kind of the perfect storm of all of those things. So, Neil, can I can I just brag oh, for a sure. second and say I've been listening to you and Dave on your very good Patreon Ooh, podcast. Yeah, thanks. Uh, happy to do it. And um, you guys have been talking a lot about like casting mm-hmm. directors and and set designers and folk, right? Like trying to spotlight the the folks who are sometimes below the line. And I just want you to know, because of that, I went in and I pulled the sound design name. I pulled the <laughs> casting director name. We're going to get into all these people. Great, but I just didn't want you to feel like you had to plug Dante Spinotti because I got a, I got a pair. Oh yeah, no. Here. I mean, we we could do a whole Dante Spinotti podcast if you wanted to. We could. We could. Um, okay, so so at the start of the movie, um, you know. If you haven't seen Heat and you're listening to this, interesting choice. I can only say hi, Mom, I guess. But um, it opens up with a crime, and then we get the all-time great uh, Al Pacino, like Neil said, going over the top and, and delivering us a breakdown of the crime scene. Let's take no a listen. time because they were on a clock, which means they knew our response time to a 2.11, had our air, immobilized it, entered, escaped in under three minutes. It's a good spot here. We got good escape routes. Two freeways within a quarter of a mile. Traffic video camera, probably disabled. Check it anyway. You recognize the MO? MO is that they're good. Once it escalated into a murder one beat for all of them after they killed the first two guards, they didn't hesitate. Pop guard number three, because what difference does it make? Why leave a living witness? Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. I have to say, I've been saying drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll to my wife for like the last three weeks. But there is something about just a very well-written piece of dialogue in, in any movie, right? We could talk about uh, Jerry Maguire or uh, Deepak, you and I are always throwing um, uh, true grit lines back and forth at each other. There's just a certain type of dialogue that like you want to say the words, right? It's like impossible to let some some scripts go. There's a verisimilitude there that you can tell that he's done the research they're, they're technical terms but you can understand what Pacino is saying maybe because of the performance or just mm-hmm. because the words are so carefully chosen but you again goes back to the realism or the perceived realism of it where you know it's not you know gumshoe talk from late night cable it feels real yeah I, I always forget about Pacino in this movie I think a lot of people forget right there's there's his big moments but it's it is one of the more especially as he got more famous and sort of became a bigger talent you know at this point in 1995 he was all caps al pacino and his the commitment that he has right i think the thing that makes heat work outside of all the you know filmmaking elements around them is the the full commitment that you get from both Pacino and De Niro in these roles. And uh, it's just, it's some really special stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, people always jump to the diner scene as kind of the apex of that. But the, I think the reason that that is so good is because they are so incredibly good in every moment of these characters' performances, right? Like they are always locked in you're always excited to see either one of them on screen. And then when they come together, you know, it's like the Avengers, mm-hmm. whatever, right? Um, so, so shortly after that, we get a, a sequence in which Robert Downey, uh, Robert Downey, I said Avengers and my brain broke, <laughs> in which Robert De Niro's uh, Neil McCauley meets 
a uh, very attractive woman who's much younger than him, and his reaction to this is basically, hey, lady, fuck off. But uh, eventually, he's on her balcony, and they're kind of looking out over Los Angeles. And Neil, I was wondering if you could explain to me why people always talk about digital and film with Michael Mann. I've been told it has something to do with this this shot here of the kind of green screen LA behind them on this balcony. But honestly, I don't really understand it myself. Well, I mean, you know, I think Michael Mann went through a period, right, where he has been experimenting with digital. And I think that it worked well and it worked and it, you know, there are places where it doesn't work. I don't see anything but beauty in the way he mm. is composed. Um, I think there's like a sort of an ethereal nature to this, this sequence where the lights of LA start to sort of blend together. And, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, there are pieces in this film of mood, right. That are just, it's all vibes. And, and it's, it's when man chooses to push realism, right. Push past it. It's, for the vibe you know so it's the vibe of Mm. look at how big and sprawling los angeles is uh and how sort of dreamy this world is uh you know and obviously we'll get to the vibes that come later that he creates with you know sound and fury but um yeah i mean i think there's always a discussion about uh you know whether or not cg or digital photography uh is good or bad and it really is it's always just a matter of it's a tool in the hands of a filmmaker. And I think in Michael Mann's hands, it's it's it doesn't really ever look bad to me, um, you know, especially not in heat. Deepak, I'm wondering, you know, you and I have talked before. We talk a lot on this podcast, actually, about like the way that certain directors will kind of apply their political clout to maybe a pet project. Right. Like Nolan's always trying to shoot as much as he can in IMAX. Um you know, we had Ang Lee experimenting with frame rate there for a minute. It seemed like it might mm-hmm. get exciting. Do you feel when we talk about when we talk about that, we talk about it with with largesse, right? We're always very impressed by that sort of thing. Do you feel any kind of like uh, uh, emotional feeling one way or the other on the idea of film versus digital? And do you think that there is anything more than just a feeling on that for people to have. Do you think there's like an actual difference in the product? No, I think what Neil said is 100% correct, which is that it's a tool to be used by the filmmaker however they choose to use it. I mean, there are people like Fincher who use digital, I think, probably better than anyone or even for a particular cinematographer. We talk about Roger Deakins and the way he uses digital for the images and stuff like Skyfall or 1917 or even Blade Runner, right? But if we want to stick it particularly to man his transition to digital if i recall correctly was out of practicality because of collateral taking place entirely at night he needed something that could handle low light mm-hmm. same thing happened with miami vice there's a lot of low light there so digital became more of a practical option i think after that you get to public enemies and black hat where it's not necessarily about whether or not it services some practical need or if it services the story it's more about i'm already doing digital the industry is moving towards digital let's keep it that way and Public Enemies is where you really start to see people go, I don't know if this is right because it's a movie that takes place in the past. Digital may not be appropriate for it. I thought it was fine. I thought he's clearly trying to do something here, experimental, where you kind of get like a docu-realism effect. Uh, there's a big shootout in Public Enemies at that um, they're up in the forest hiding out in some The cabins. one in the cabin? Yeah. yeah. And, I remember uh, that one very vividly. Yeah, and I thought it worked fantastically well for that. Um, I don't really remember Black Hat, to be honest. 
but yeah, like I mean, it's the way that you use it and the why you use it um, tends to dictate how well the result turns out. Yeah, I th- I, I'm glad that we're all on the same page there, mostly because you can find a video online of Dante Spinetti and Christopher Nolan kind of getting into a weird fight about this in a really passive-aggressive way. Um, but that aside, I I think that you're absolutely right, Deepak, and I like that you pointed out the idea that he shoots so much at night and so mu- he has such a commitment, and I think Spinetti is a real master of this, a dedication to lighting things as they would be lit in the scene right like he'll use Mm -hmm. natural lighting thank you i couldn't that was what was (laughs) escaping me and it and it looks incredible right because you get you know the headlight or the street lights passing over tom cruise's face in collateral for example right or there's that incredible shot in heat where kilmer throws Mm -hmm. the thing and it hits the light and like the lighting of the scene Mm -hmm. changes um and that's that's entirely you know, because of that dedication to that level of realism, right? It, it wouldn't have happened otherwise, and it's it's very cool. Yeah. I, think. I mean, it, it's it's really impressive. I mean, that one is just got to be one of my all time favorite like accidents that went extremely well on set, <laughs> right? The happy accidents I, of leaving the camera rolling. Yeah, I have I have such a bad habit of needing to share everything <laughs> with my beautiful and tolerant wife, and I was like, Maggie, come in here, come in here, and she's like, Okay, cool, and I was like, he No, breaks it's so cool. When he kicks the helmet. It's amazing. So cool. He breaks his cup when he kicks the helmet. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of the things I love about, um, you know, all of all of the just talking scenes, the the scenes where Michael Mann in Heat takes us to the homes of all of these people, and and you know, as he describes, allowing us to see how they live, allowing us to connect with characters on both sides, you know, of the law in this case, and you get these wonderful sort of naturally lit. Uh, sequences and then you get these pops of you know this cool blue that washes over certain scenes and you get the this these just really interesting pops of color when he wants you to uh, I don't know I guess take note pay attention feel something you know very specific Mm -hmm. and unique in the moment Uh, it's you know it's a well put together film Uh, I think that's the theme here (laughs) (laughs) and so perfect so they go we do have these visits right with these folks in the houses and following up on Kilmer throwing uh, whatever it was a shoe or whatever at Ashley Judd um, we meet up with him in Robert De Niro's home early in the morning and we have a clip from that remember Jimmy McElwain on the yard used to say you want to be making moves on the street have no attachments allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Remember that? For me, the sun rises and sets with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a hard movie about soft boys who love each other. <laughs> it really is. Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> it's part of what I love about it so much. This is, you know, a great example of, first of all, really wonderful production design in Neil Macaulay's house. Uh, Where he doesn't own Yeah, just furniture. to communicate that this is a dude who does not, he, he may be a, a, a serial bank robber, but he is not a materialist in any way. He is ready to walk out in this life. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I think you hit it. The... The relationships between the men in this movie, I think, are so strong 
that they overshadow, you know, some of the maybe less interesting stuff. You know, I, I, I always joke that, you know, Michael Mann, one of the things he passed along to Michael Bay is that none of them have ever really had a full conversation with a woman before, uh, <laughs> uh, which, you know, is a, I think it's a valid criticism of a lot of man's work, but I think he makes up for it elsewhere, right? He makes up for it by telling us these stories of tortured friendship. Uh, you know, in Heat, we eventually get to this incredible begrudging respect rivalry situation between De Niro and Pacino. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, those are the those are the nuanced relationships that he wants to be exploring, right? And uh, this is a really good example. Plus, again, extremely committed De Niro. I mean, it's funny. I was actually thinking as we were planning to talk about this, what are the like things I don't like and or would criticize about Heat, which is, in my mind, otherwise a perfect movie. And it's one of the things that I've always found kind of funny about it is at their ages in 95, De Niro and Pacino, you know, they had the gruff action guy they had these these really great faces and deliveries and sort of iconic personas but i don't know if i ever believed that they were like magnets for these gorgeous women Mm. right (laughs) like 50 year old robert de niro and i i want to say uh generously uh 30 year old amy brenneman i you took the words (laughs) out of my mouth i was gonna say let's say generously 30 um so I think it's it's funny because, you know, Heat, I think, would be like a sexier movie if you had two younger leads. Uh, but you wouldn't get the, the the perfection of the way De Niro and, and Pacino deliver their lines in this film. So I don't think I would trade it, to be honest. I'm not even sure it's an age issue. I what? think it's more about the fact that with especially De Niro and Brenneman, they're, they're just lonely people that are drawn together by their loneliness. Sure. Um, the age of it probably is not as relevant with Pacino. I feel like Venora is about his age, right? Not that much younger than him. So maybe it works. They're, they're just both such, there's um, such magnetic presence, like healthy, well-adjusted to guys too. Right. So <laughs> it makes sense that people would tolerate their behavior. They're mm-hmm. so good. Like, um, <laughs> one of, one of the things Deepak, you and I were actually having fun with around this idea the other day was, you know, after the heat two conversation was happening where, I guess he's going to write a novel that will be a prequel, which makes sense because, it, like Neil had mentioned earlier with Collateral, he likes to do a lot of background work with actors before. Yeah, there's apparently you know, a whole Bible kind of for committing... uh, Vincent and Collateral out there too. So. Yeah, so so one of the things we were to get one of the things we were saying was: Are there two actors that you could cast today to play two parts similar to this that would get as much excitement? as the idea of De Niro and Pacino together on screen for the first time? Or is all of that now occupied by being excited to see Spider-Man and Spider-Man <laughs> on screen at the same time? Man, that's a really tough one. I think you all, it's, it's funny because we also just had, uh, I just watched The Gray Man, which yeah. you would think is sort of a you know descendant of that kind of filmmaking, right? Where it's like, Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, they square off finally. <laughs> and it's like 1% as good as Heat. So yeah. it's yeah. it's kind of hard. I mean, I think of like, oh God, who who played him in the uh, in that 
in that Paramount Plus show, The Offer. Oh, Miles Teller. N- nobody. No, Miles oh, you mean Teller, who, no. who played Pacino? I, he's who played cover. Pacino. Some yeah. some no uh, some actor I'd not heard of before. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there is a, is a pair of actors at that stature uh, that could you know feasibly do it. Um, Where I landed, and Deepak vetoed this. I landed on if we were gonna, you know, do heat to the movie, mm-hmm. it's Pattinson as De Niro and Driver as Pacino. But Neil uh, Deepak said no because he wants less Adam Driver. Oh, world because he's a monster. I mean, I well, think he's fine. He's just that's everywhere. One, that's 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 one way to attack it. Um, when Riley and I were having this conversation, the closest kind of simile I could think of for this was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, DiCaprio and Pitt coming together for the first time. Yes. So right. I yeah, could maybe see both of them roughly yeah, adjacent. Just throw them in there and call it Heat 2. Sure. So I would almost want him, you know, I, I would almost want man to go with, you know, lesser knowns. Right, lesser knowns that just oh, sort yeah, of feel yeah, right, right for the character. Mm-hmm. Um, no, yeah. If we were actually going to do Heat too, I agree with that. But it's it's just this weird this weird mental sure. puzzle of like I don't know. It's because there's no movie stars anymore, right? Well, <laughs> all right. Here, here's another pitch. Um, because uh, you know any filmmaking tool is a tool, and it depends on who is holding the tool. Uh, oh, because we know that Scorsese did it pretty properly in The Irishman. Mm-hmm. Why shouldn't someone give Michael Mann that much money to do it again yeah. and do more uh, Neil McCauley, Vincent Hanna stuff? Uh, why not at this point, right? And just have it be a lot of dialogue sure. scenes. Because that was really the only thing that didn't work with Irishman, right? Is people like to knock on... Him beating up the grocer. When, uh, De- yeah. yeah, De Niro was curb stomping that guy. But other th- yeah, it was perfect. Sure. In my opinion, other than that, and I saw it at the draft house on the big yeah. screen. I mean, so. you you still have to yeah. recast Chris Chaherlis. You gotta you gotta find a replacement for Kilmer, but um, you know why not just DH him? I haven't point? seen Top Gun yet, but didn't they do something digital with him in that one? Uh, they did his digital voice, oh, okay. um, which I thought was good. It was probably one of the the better recreations, especially after seeing the sort of not great version in uh, the Boba Fett show with uh, Mark Hamill. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I feel super comfortable about them like de-aging and fully redoing the voice for, for Val Kilmer. But um, I think that's Christian Hurlis is probably one that you could, you could find an actor who could maybe do it. Um, maybe, maybe give us a little bit of that strung out uh, Val early, you know, mid nineties vibe. There's your Pattinson. So sure, yeah, maybe maybe that's where you put Pattinson. <laughs> Deepak was asking me, do you speaking of, do you think that he's so worn out because that's the character, or do you think it's because he was also doing Batman prep? I mean, I think that it works because Val Kilmer no, was yeah, living a hard life in the mid nineties. <laughs> <laughs> so while we're on the subject of all these incredible performances and how we really don't think there's probably many folks who could command the same admiration. Uh, William Goldenberg, the editor of this movie, one of the things that I found a lot of people talking about with him was that he builds scenes around performances Mm -hmm. and then kind of tries to cut for the emotional cue of the scene. Uh, Thinking about that and watching this, it really made a lot of sense. But also it's one of those things that's so effective because 
you don't have to think mm-hmm. about it. You just really are feeling where no, these guys I mean, are the, at. The, the big movie. thing here is that it's a two hour, 15 minute movie that just kind of blazes by. And the thing with man is that he always cuts his movies very, very lean. You could argue that he almost cuts them too lean. Uh, the big, probably obvious example is something like Miami Vice, where there's the theatrical cut that just starts with you being dropped into the nightclub. I kind of prefer the director's cut, so-called director's cut, because it gives you a little bit more of that breathing room just to kind of ease you into the world a little bit. Um, and I could argue that he probably does need some deleted scenes. Like, I let's give if it's a three-hour movie, give us some scenes of Pacino doing coke. Let's let's explain the outbursts. <laughs> let's get some of that. Um, if you're going to have that much texture in your movie, what's a little more? Um, but at the same time, it's hard to criticize. It's a thriller. It's an action movie. And for two hours and 50 minutes, it blazes by you. Um, so it's hard yeah. to really criticize him too much. And I, he does cut around that. performances and I think to your question. Because, I mean, the performances are probably the most memorable thing about this movie in a, in a movie that's full of memorable things. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to give us an in to talk editing corner for a while because I know that was important to you. I also, one of the things that, as you were saying, it made me think of is not only is the pace so great, right, that we really do clip along, but I always like that story that you can find some places of how uh, they wanted to sell the TV rights and it was an issue that it was three hours, so they wanted to cut it down to 240. And his counter proposal was he could get it up to four. Yeah, make it a two night event. <laughs> yeah. I just like that's why that is yeah wild. I mean and it's all made even more impressive by the fact that they basically cut this thing in half the time that they needed you know mm-hmm. the oh right because the the date got yeah I mean right? I think he tells the story on uh the television show one perfect shot on HBO max he does uh, that's casual where I plug, saw it. uh about how basically it was like June and they were getting in you know really in deep in the edit and the studio wanted it out by Christmas right and uh that is one one scenario where man uh could not fight city hall on this one and uh but they did it and i think you know you you see the way bill goldenberg talks about working with michael mann and you see the way he can he said you know it was terror the hours were terrible it was an incredible crunch it was not the best working conditions you know from a stress and sleep standpoint but it was an absolute gift because you know look at what look at what they got i personally i don't know if i would add anything to heat i think it's you know i don't i don't have any sort of litmus test for like what is a good runtime a good runtime for a movie is the one that feels right for that individual movie Mm -hmm. and i think you know heat is sort of right where it needs to be it's exactly as energetic and fast a movie as you need to keep people interested for that long and um yeah i mean sequel yes but i don't know if i would ever need to add anything to heat it's uh sort of perfect the way it is good movies never long enough bad movies never short enough yep it's, it remains true mm-hmm. i we're inviting a lot of batman comparisons which i think is appropriate <laughs> but it's almost the exact same runtime as the batman mm-hmm. and i love the batman a lot but it lags a little bit in that final act and I don't think Heat has that problem at all right so it you know just bona fide evidence that it is not runtime it is what yeah I mean uh, the Batman unfortunately does not have moments where Al Pacino comes in cranked up to like 15 that would, that's what the <laughs> next one needs that's what <laughs> Pacino is Mr. Freeze so uh, yeah I mean Pacino is literally any Batman villain would be hilarious <laughs> 
Oh, speaking of which, I wanted to do this. I'm a little late, but I think maybe in the cut it'll come out right. But I just wanted to say, I was podcasting with Neil Miller half an hour ago. Um, that was, I just really wanted to get Great. that. I, you know, what um, I love about Pacino in this is that everybody remembers him screaming, she's got a great ass, right? It's the meme that yeah. comes from Heat. <laughs> what I always sort of lightly forget is how many other times he gets to that level with other characters in, in just ways that feel like, how does this guy not get shot? <laughs> like, how does this dude just walk around the criminal underworld as a as a as a detective in LA screaming intensely at people and no one's ever like <laughs> just I'm just gonna bass. shoot this dude. So so story story time, I was Riley knows the story. My dad watched this movie for the first time like two weeks ago because we were talking about public enemies or something on Netflix and then I mentioned heat and he had no idea what I was talking about. So I was oh, like, wow. this has to be rectified immediately. So he sits down You got to show your dad, exactly. dad So movie. he finally watches Heat and he comes back, he goes, It was good but Pacino was just too cranked up in this one. It was ridiculous. So I explained to him, well, they had this whole thing where he's a coke addict, but they cut it out, whatever. And he goes, well, then they should have left that in because otherwise it just makes him look incompetent. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh, interesting. Maybe. I mean, it. you know, I think it, it makes him, it helps you understand why his marriage is falling apart, I yeah. think, more than anything else. And it's part and parcel of the sort of strongest characterization of him, which is that he is insanely dedicated, not just mm-hmm. to his job, but to the, the hunt, right? He, he's the guy who catches the bad guy. He, he believes in sort of the, seems to believe in the purity of that. Uh, and that's sort of his, his number one driving force as a human. Um, but yeah, I mean, him just being a chaotic person <laughs> helps us understand the, the chaos that is going on in his personal life for sure because he's on marriage number three or something like that that he says and on the way down that that cafe scene really gets to the whole point of what you're saying which is that they both just do what they're good at they don't know any other setting they don't know Mm -hmm. any other way to be so if there's a hunt he's gonna hunt and if there's a bank to heist then De Niro's gonna heist it and that's just the end of it Deepak if I may I think we have a clip you know we're sitting here you and I are like a couple of regular fellas. I mean, you do what you do, I do what I gotta do. And now that we've been face to face, if I'm there and I gotta put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're gonna turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. There's a flip side to that coin. What if you do got me boxed in? Then I gotta put you down. Cause no matter what, you will not get my way. We've been face to face, yeah. But I will not hesitate. Not for a second. It's just so good. <laughs> I want to go watch this movie again now. <laughs> I mean, you know, great performances aside, uh, the, the bravado on display is, is just all time. 
next level. And yes. you know, I think it's it's kind of difficult, I guess, to conceive uh, now living in today's sort of media environment. Um, just how sort of singular and huge it was that these two guys were sharing a scene together. Obviously, this is not the first movie they appeared in together, but mm-hmm. to bring them together as rivals in these two roles is, uh, you know, it was a huge thing at the time. It was a big old crossover, you know, uh, of, of Hollywood yeah. talent. And uh, it, it's one of, the, one of those that lives up to the hype of its time and the, the legendary hype that's come since, you know? Well, and not for nothing, but, you know, we are giving all due and appropriate praise to Mrs. De Niro and Pacino, but casting director Bonnie Timmerman mm-hmm. Also coming in here with Val Kilmer, John Voight, uh, Verena, Brenneman, Judd, Portman, Sizemore. Such a good cast all the way down. Yeah, I mean... Haysburg. It's, it's a real laundry list of, like, great that guys. I mean, mm-hmm. you didn't... There's ones you didn't even mention here. Wes Duty, mm-hmm. who plays one of Pacino's oh, yeah. guys. Ted Levine, uh, who silenced movie? some lamps. Uh... Ted Levine, who I first discovered as the the Captain Stottlemyre on mm-hmm. Monk, and then I watched him do all those horrible <laughs> things to those nice women. Yeah, no, Ted Levine, he's he's been around all time. Great that guy. I mean, you get Haysbert, Dennis Haysbert, uh, who one of the yep. most tragic characters in this film in mm-hmm. such a short time. Uh, Michael T. Williamson played Bubba Gump. Yep. William Fickner, all time great that guy. I mean, you even get this is one that I had forgotten. Uh, I guess because I just always forget that uh, Jeremy Piven is in this movie as the doctor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just, it's, you know, Jeremy Piven and his 1995 hairline are there on display. Um, But yeah, I mean, we, and then, and then you haven't even gotten to like Tom Noonan, uh, who. Bud Court is the, is the guy at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You get uh, who Trail. again? Weird movies. My mom showed me. Sh- saw Harold and Maude way too young. Yep. You get Hank Azaria as a as a real bumble in uh, Las Vegas uh, sleazeball type. Danny Trejo, who may or may not have uh, betrayed them at the end. And his character named he Trejo. Did. I always like. Yeah, I guess he did. I like the guys that man just met in a prison or whatever. And was like, hey, you want to be a movie star? And then it just worked out for him. Um, yeah, I mean, Danny Trejo, all-time great actor. Uh, you get Henry Rollins sort of in the background of this movie a little bit. You get uh, Tone Loke, one of my favorite ones, is American rapper. I have no... I bet this is new. Funky Cold me. Medina. I mean, so you're aware of that song, Funky Cold Medina, right? No, I, I'm aware yeah. of Tone Loke the person. I didn't know Tone Loke. It's, it, it's another one of those. He plays the guy. Oh, is he the? He's, he's the, the brother. brother who tells him in yeah, the club. Yeah, and it's just one of those oh. unmistakable voice, voices um, that every time he shows up, I'm like, oh right, Tone Loke. Um, I'm always very distracted in that scene that it's a House of Pain song they're playing in the background. <laughs> right. Mm. Um, do you want to know the saddest one? I think uh, among these. Uh, the saddest off-screen story, uh, I guess, is yes. that is that of Kevin Gage, the guy who played Wayne Grow. Have you, have you ever heard of what happened to him I later heard, in life? I heard he went to prison and was called Wayne Grow. Uh, yeah, I mean, he went to prison uh, for one of the dumbest reasons to go to prison, which uh, is that he was cultivating marijuana. He was 
he was growing his own weed. Hmm. And yeah, that's objectively a terrible reason. Yeah. So in 2003, he got 41 months in prison, even though he would, even though I guess he had a license. Anyway, first of all, make sure you're registered to vote. They need to decriminalize uh, marijuana and expunge all those records because what a what a dumb what a dumb thing that is. But really sad story of of a guy who gives a really good performance in this as the creepy, uh, I guess, serial killer Wayne Grow, and uh, yeah. you know for that to happen. Just, that's one of the wild fun, I guess, not fun facts about the cast of Heat. But overall, top to bottom, just. Uh, cast of of all time great that guys um that michael mann you know can a lot of these folks show up in a lot of his other movies right you know ted levine in particular Mm -hmm. so uh yeah i mean you know i even john voight john voight's a tough one because obviously john voight uh in real life has some real bad takes Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) but especially in the 90s john voight was a very good actor John Voight in this movie looks like that picture that came out of Trump a couple of weeks ago where he didn't have his spray tan on. They have like the exact same face. Don't, don't, yeah. don't do Voight dirty uh, like that. I mean, I mean, Voight, I mean I, Voight. Well, he was wearing makeup is the thing. That's Voight's why Trump it was okay. Guy, I mean, okay. yeah, I mean, we don't even feel bad for John yeah, they Voight. They can both look, look terrifying <laughs> together. Um, okay, so I did want to just get through a couple more things here while we're wrapping up. Who did I want to call out? I just said, oh, oh, we have, we should... Let's talk about the bank robbery scene. Mm. The sound design, Peter Michael Sullivan, incredible. I mean, part of what makes that scene so perfect is I feel like the way they are able to use sound design to convey the amount of fear that would be coursing through your body if you were just one of these pedestrians who's running and screaming. Yeah. Um, they really get across the idea that guns are big, loud, dangerous weapons that will kill you, which isn't. I mean, I think is a Michael Mann signature, mm-hmm. but is not a thing that most directors try and spotlight. Yeah, I mean, you know, from the standpoint of realism, uh, there is, I think, very there are very few portrayals of on-screen gun violence that are as hyper real and terrifying as the shoot the street shootout in Heat. It's, you know, I also think it's one of the the sound design of that sequence is also one of those great, not just happy accidents, but again, it brings us back to auteur theory the person making the ultimate decision so you know michael mann having the sound team go through and do you know fully edits and editing in the gun sounds and then listening to it and deciding this isn't good enough we need to go back to the the sound that we recorded on set and that ultimately becoming you know this iconically vivid sequence is uh yeah, it's the reason why you, you hire Michael Mann and you let him make the decisions, you know? Yeah, I think there's uh, a lot to be said. Deepak, you and I were, were sending snarky text messages to each other about this yesterday while I was at the doctor. I think there's a lot to be said for hiring an artist and letting them mm-hmm. make the movie. Yeah, imagine. I was just, sorry, I was quiet because I thought, I was just trying to research. I thought they didn't use Foley for this. That's why it sounds so incredible. That's why well, yeah, that's the thing. They yeah. tried it at first and when man saw it he was like nope this isn't right yeah he's like let's go back to the the, the sound that we recorded on the day and it worked out a lot better mm-hmm. yeah just wild just wild and, and that can be you know 
a brave choice for a person to make as well, right? Because your impulse would have to be, well, maybe I'm just, you know, he sounds weird to me, but of course, we don't use the real noises from the movie sets. We never do mm-hmm. that. And Yeah, I mean, it's it's trusting an instinct that goes against what would traditionally be the thing you would do. Yeah. I, I did not pull a clip of very loud gunshots. <laughs> I thought I would save us all that uh, yeah. experience. It's probably good for anybody listening to the podcast in their car. You know, loud mm. with the windows <laughs> down. That's not something you want to be broadcasting during your commute. <laughs> no, not at all. A... Uh, but other than that, we appreciate you broadcasting us during your commute. Do we want to do final thoughts? I mean, we're wrapping up here. There's, like you say, we could talk about this for probably the runtime of the movie. There's so much to talk about. But anything else anybody wants to mention or plug for people? To I have, um, to... I have two fun corners. Yeah, I, I can't. I yeah. can't talk about a movie, apparently, without doing some sort of corner. <laughs> Neil, can I tell you what an honor it's about to sure. be for me to go into one of the corners? Well, and these are these are two corners that, if you've listened to my podcasting work elsewhere, um, you know, in the storm of spoilers or uh, the lost podcast era, will sound very familiar. Uh, one is this movie definitely has some bad wigs in it. Um, yes. It is, there's, there are some ill-advised... Uh, hair choices it's one of the one of the things that sort of i sort i I oddly appreciate about michael mann is he's all about realism and he's all about giving you this real emotional experience about you feeling what it's like to be really in a uh you know shootout but you know some of the details aren't as important like you know do these wigs (laughs) look great it's also an all-time accent corner movie for two yes. specific characters um one is oh can we play i mean if it, you know if all right so let's look up i'll let you guys guess where where is amy brenneman from not the south okay <laughs> so in this isn't it in like, this film her character is from is from appalachia she describes it as Appalachia. That doesn't sound right to me. Uh, you know, growing up in Ohio and and sort of right. near it, I always called yes. it Appalachia. Yes. Well, we. Well, interesting. So we are. I I am Deepak used to mm-hmm. be in Western Virginia. Okay. Probably about half an hour from the West Virginia border, and I've always heard people say it Appalachia. Ooh, so this okay. might be a regional. So this situation probably slightly better than I thought. Her accents never sounded great to me. Um, but yeah, no. if you had to guess where she, what's what state of the union she's from? She's American. I'm gonna say she was born in California. I'm gonna say New York. Uh, close. She was born in New London, Connecticut. Ooh. So, ah. I, <laughs> you know, never quite, uh, never quite sold on Amy Brenneman's accent. But yeah, no, I, you know, uh, that's that's not a problem for me. The other funny one is uh, De Niro. And yeah, okay. the character yeah, sure. of Neil McCauley being from the Bay Area. Mm. <laughs> and him just being like, hey, you know, back in Oakland, we just, just fucking forget about it. <laughs> so that's always sort of tickled me. But I think that Michael Mann gives us enough realism in his movies that we can overlook some some poor wig choices and some questionable accent work. Uh, or in De Niro's case, he's not trying to emulate an you know, no. Bay Area accent. It's just funny that he keeps Neil McCauley continues to bring up his home in the Bay Area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, growing up in San Francisco or whatever. 
I had never thought about that, and now I'm never going to be able to not think about that when I watch this yeah. movie. That was a great place for us to end. Thank you, Neil, for having your corners prepared, and thanks for coming on to talk yeah. with us about yeah. Heat no, and Michael Mann thank stuff. Thank you. It's, it's been a, a delight to be here and talk about a legendary movie and a legendary filmmaker and someone I admire greatly, and uh, absolute delight. Thank you so much for having me. Do you want to plug all your stuff? Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously run to your local HBO Max and watch the HBO Max mm-hmm. original One Perfect Shot uh, while that streaming service is uh, uh, wh- wh- wherever it wherever it goes or whatever happens to it. I hope you watch uh, all of them, especially the Michael Mann episode. We're particularly proud of that one. But you can also find me on Trial by Content, which is a show on the Ringer Podcast Network with my close friends joanna robinson and dave gonzalez where we debate all kinds of nonsense uh you know all kinds of different pop culture topics what what was this week this week was uh well, you you just did uh t- comic book tv yeah shows. best comic book tv show i'll probably lose that and then one. you're yeah by the time this is up you will have just done best finales yeah and listen if uh if everyone gets out of that one alive I think it'll be a huge win <laughs> because the best TV finale is going to be kind of a bloodbath. And then uh, the Patreon podcast, Dave and, Dave and Neil's Pop Culture Adventure, where we're talking about Godzilla this week. Go. It's very fun. I will very clip cool. this, Neil, if it needs to be clipped. But I heard a rumor on a fighting in a war room mm-hmm. that you might also soon have a Game of Thrones podcast. Yeah, we're, uh, we're finalizing some plans to obviously... Cool. Uh, the people the the people who have listened to dave joanna and i uh, for many years many of whom started when we were a storm of spoilers and we were covering game of thrones um people have demanded obviously that we do it so we're uh we're in the mix hopefully by actually by the time this this podcast uh comes out uh we will have announced some various places where you can hear me talking about game of thrones let's go poke around the internet if that's a thing Mm -hmm. you want Neil, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Uh, And don't forget to tune in next week to hear. Ah, that's a great piece of sound.